So uh, some of you know that uh, I've shared before that I grew up in a family of, uh, I'm number five of six kids. And um, we lived in the same house my entire life until actually when I moved out uh, and uh, shortly after that got married to my wife, Jen. And in this home, it, there would be like stories in each room and you would just the uh, images that uh, would conjure up in my memory of uh, just some uh, incredible times in those homes. Uh, I, can, I can picture uh, as if it was yesterday walking into the kitchen uh, of this home that I grew up in and uh, right next to the refrigerator on the wall, there was hanging uh, on this hook uh, a paddle that my dad had built. Uh, my dad loved to work with wood, and uh, this was one of his finest pieces of uh, work up to that point. It, it was about five or six inches wide. It was probably 14 to 16 inches tall. But my dad had taken the time to actually uh, carve into it the shape so that it would just fit his hand perfectly. Uh, and then uh, he was uh, so careful in, in his thought that he even uh, took his drill with a pretty good-sized drill bit, and he would put holes in the face of that paddle for the very specific purposes that when he would swing it to hit our butts, the wind resistance would be removed, and it would be, make a much better contact. My dad loved uh, to, to just work with his hands. Now, don't get me wrong. My dad was uh, a man of God. In fact, it would... It kind of surprised me that he didn't have inscribed on the paddle, spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, But I quickly learned that um, this paddle uh, would inflict pain. Uh, I'm thankful that uh, the paddle wasn't used as much on me as it was on my older brother, but definitely I got more than my fair share. But even though that instrument would, would... bring pain in my life, Uh, the only person who used that paddle was my dad. Um, My mom had figured out a way to actually uh, inflict even more pain through some of her discipline activities. It would happen like this. So I've got this little brother, and uh, he and I would, uh, from time to time, we would get into it. And uh, whether, I mean... uh, arguing and uh, would escalate into starting to, you know, shove one another, punch one another, hit one another. And and if my dad wasn't home, my mom would be the one who would have to come in and break us apart and uh, kind of restore order. And when mom would show up, and in those moments, uh, her, her tactic for discipline and for inflicting pain was much worse than my dad swinging a paddle my mom would pull us apart and she would look at me and my brother and she would say, all right, boys, hug one another. (laughs) I mean, I would much rather dad was standing there with a paddle than actually hugging my little brother. And and my mom would typically say something to this effect. She'd say, boys, you are not enemies, you're brothers. You know, there's times in our life where we kind of get confused with who the enemy is. I mean, in today's world, I mean, with all the finger pointing, with all the conflict that's going on in the world, it it almost appears as if anybody could be our enemy at one time or another. 
I mean, we've got these struggles that we're dealing with, and, and sometimes we confuse who the enemy might be. I mean, even just in our own personal lives, where we're searching for peace, but it feels as if it will never come. Uh, some of you are struggling with health problems, where the diagnosis or the prognosis is not anything that it feels as if you will ever come out on the other side victorious. Some of you are going through some financial challenges where the difficult decisions made around money and the significant challenges as inflation continues to escalate and you're struggling with, is there really going to be an answer? And you're feeling as if the enemy is perhaps, uh, you know, the, the IRS, price of gas, your boss, whatever it might be. Uh, some of us, we, we, we've mistaken and we believe that there's not going to be any peace in our home because the enemy has shown up where the worldview decisions and opinions and beliefs that differ within family members hits home. But on top of all of that, in the past couple of weeks, it, surely... We're recognizing where it feels as if the escalating tension among nations, especially in the Middle East right now, it feels as if peace will never come. And in fact, there's this growing sense of fear that, we were, that something biblical is on the horizon. And this unrest and this challenge, and we're feeling it as if, like, man, we are in a constant battle. Constant battle with our neighbors, constant battle with the government, constant battles with our employer, constant battles with just all things that are coming at us. And we're feeling as if that there is no peace on the horizon. We're moving in, into this series uh, that's all about being battle ready. And, and I want us to recognize that the enemy is very real, but too often we've got our eyes on the wrong thing or person and we're completely missing who the real enemy is. Bring into light Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6 that go like this. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, when you read these words, maybe your mind is conjuring up images of the exorcist or stranger things. Whereas this battle that's going on where these dark, evil creatures that are somewhere out there in this dark spiritual world, are at battle. But I want you to know something. That within every one of us, we have a sinful nature. And left to ourselves, we will always choose to please our sinful nature. There is something, or more correctly, someone who is behind that sinful nature and who's at work. And so I want you to, to be encouraged that though you're in a spiritual battle, you do not need uh, to fear. In fact, it's very real. 
but if we'll identify the enemy, we'll recognize uh, how we can endure and how we can actually experience peace. I've got some Christian brothers and sisters in West Africa who have witnessed firsthand satanic power displayed in very real and physical manners. And I personally have not seen it, but I can assure you that that need deep within me to, to have enough money to secure my future and to feel as if like uh, I'll be safe and, and able to retire and all that other kind of stuff, that comes from spiritual forces that are at work in me that are creating doubt, that are creating a lack of trust, that's driving this need to enable myself to have more and to be able to assure and ensure uh, my wife, my children, etc., that the future uh, will be manageable. Uh, there are spiritual forces that are at work. And, and, and what I must recognize is that, that in our Christian walk, perhaps uh, the follower of Jesus might be tempted to resign themselves to a quiet corner and kind of dismiss their ability to affect any significant change when it comes to a spiritual battle. But here's the thing. Satan already knows that he is no match for God. You see, he's already gone to battle with the Godhead. And he's already been defeated because Jesus rose from the grave. You see, Satan knows that he cannot win the battle. And he knows that though his destiny, it's secured in hell forever... He knows that he will never rule over God. That, that doesn't mean that Satan won't stop at whatever he can in order to take as many people with him as possible. You see, misery loves company, and he's going to do whatever he can. Even though he has been defeated, he's going to try to take as many with him, and so he is at work. It's kind of like... At the end of the NFL season this year, the Cleveland Browns, they're going to be out of playoff contention by then. But they play the last game of the regular season, Cincinnati Bengals. And the Cleveland Browns will go into that game wanting to beat the Bengals in order to keep the Bengals out of playoff contention. The Browns, they know that they won't make the playoffs. And the only thing that's going to make them happy is to prevent the Bengals from making it as well. You see, Satan knows he's been defeated, but he's going to do whatever he can uh, to crush you. So he continues to lie to you. He continues to pour into your life to let you know that, you know what, you don't stand a chance. And so I wonder what battle you're facing today, what spiritual warfare you're coming up against, and you don't even recognize that it's a spiritual battle. Like in your family or in your marriage, with your kids, even in your finances, those personal strongholds and addictions that you are struggling with, that you're feeling this tension and thinking that the battle is somewhere else, I want you to know that it is a spiritual battle. And, and I, 
I wonder how your attitude about those difficulties would change if you knew what the enemy knows. If you understood what the enemy understands about what you're capable of because of the one who is in you already as a follower of Jesus. You see, Satan knows that we are forgiven. He already knows that if our God is for us, he will never be against us. So what if we actually lived in the assurance of biblical truths that the enemy already knows that he is bound to? How might that make a difference in, let's say, your average normal Tuesday? I mean, I, I believe that if you trusted in the power of the word, if you believed the promises that are made in Scripture, if you recognize that the battle belongs to the Lord, uh, I'm confident you would worry less. Many of you, for the first time, you'd be able to sleep without the help of medication. You would stop hiding your hang-up from your spouse. You'd be completely honest in conversations. You would say the remaining 10% that you hold on to because of fear. And you know that you can't trust that if you say it, how someone might react. But if you knew and you trusted and you believed what Satan already knows about the spiritual battle, you would step in to something that would free you completely. You'd be more generous with other people in your life. You'd be more generous toward God. You see, Paul states an incredible promise that I want you to see here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And so through this series, I want you to know that you're in a battle, yes, but you do not need to be afraid. As long as you're battle ready. And so each week what we're going to do is we're just going to discover the importance of some specific spiritual weapons. They're going to help you stand your ground when Satan attacks. Today, it's all about standing in God's power. When Paul spoke about the spiritual warfare, and he talked about the spiritual battles that are all around us, he gives this simple command beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6 in Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You see, the source of our strength is the Lord. It's the power of him that we are able to draw on. And so to see how this works this morning, I just want to take you to a story that's found in Judges chapter 6. We're going Old Testament again. If you were with us the past several weeks, we were learning all through the book of Exodus and the story of the Exodus of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. We're going to stay in the Old Testament today. I want us to see this really cool story that's found in Judges, but to kind of give ourselves a little bit of context before content. Uh, what I want us to, to recognize is that the Israelites, sure, they've come out of Egypt. They've entered into the promised land. And the book of Judges opens up with the death of a guy by the name of Joshua. Now, Joshua was Moses' aide there. It was, he was the successor, if you will. Aaron was his brother, but Joshua 
became the successor to Moses. When the book of Judges opens up, Joshua perishes. He's dead. And we quickly learn that Israel is without a strong godly leader. And so when you read the book of Judges, it's written in this cycle form, if you will. And here's the cycle. Israel forsakes the Lord and they serve other gods. They never drove out all of the foreign gods of all these foreign lands. And they continued to to be trapped in this false, idolatrous worship of these false gods. And, And so the Lord would deliver the Israelites into the hands of an enemy. After some time, the people would call on the Lord in their misery. And God would respond. He would send to them a judge to deliver them. Now, when you hear the word judge, and we're reading the book of Judges, it's a little bit misleading because when you and I hear the word judge, we're thinking courtroom. But these judges were not dressed in robes, sitting in a courtroom. Instead, these judges, they became regional or political, even military leaders called upon by God. And things were good for the Israelites all the days of a specific judge. But as as soon as he or she was gone, the people would go back to following other gods, and the cycle would start all over again. In chapter 6, here's what we see taking place. The people of God are being oppressed by the Midianites. For seven years, we learned that they would plant their crops, the Israelites would, and upon planting the crops at harvest time, the Midianites and other various neighboring nations would come into the land of the Israelites. They would set up camp, and they would... uh, just ravage the the crops. Uh, They would desolate the land of Israel. The text says that they were so numerous, it was as if they were like swarms of locusts. I mean, there's just a bunch of them that are there. And, And in this process... The Israelites, in their fear, especially when the Midianites and and the other neighboring nations would come in and and dwell in their land, they would turn tail and they would hide. They were hiding in caves. They they hid in the mountains. And and true to form, here in Judges chapter 6, the Israelites, they cried out to God in their misery. Faithful to his character, God responds. An angel of the Lord comes to a most unlikely of deliverer by the name of Gideon. You might be familiar with some of the pieces of the story about Gideon. Well, Gideon, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, quick glance, and if you read too quick, what you find is that that you overlook the fact that you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. In a wine press, you step on grapes and you press and you make wine. And and you would do that in a very controlled atmosphere, very small atmosphere. But if you were going to thresh wheat, you do it out in the open where the breeze can blow the chaff away. Well, getting is not threshing wheat in a very open, exposed place because he's trying to hide from the Midianites. The text is very clear of the reason of why he's doing that. 
And, and here's what we find when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon in this moment. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon, he doesn't see himself as a mighty warrior. Uh, not only is he hiding, uh, but we also learn that his clan, his tribe, his people group, if you will, it's the weakest in Manasseh. And it even tells us that he is the least in his family. He identifies himself as the least in his family. Perhaps maybe he means like he's the youngest. Or maybe he looks at his brothers or he looks at his father, maybe an uncle or someone else and says, you know what, they're a little bit more of a natural leader. They've got a little bit more skill. Gideon is no Samson by any stretch of the imagination. And yet the Lord looks at him and calls him a mighty warrior. God's calling Gideon into battle. Gideon doubts that he's up to the challenge. That's often the case for the people of God today. He invites you to step into a conversation, uh, to speak up for someone who cannot speak up. He's inviting you to take a stand uh, for the word of God, uh, for the commands of God. And yet we feel as if like, "Mm, I don't know that I'm the right person to do that. What's at work is you see your inadequacies. God sees his image in you. God said in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. That needs to remind us that every time God sees you, what he sees is he sees his image in you. He sees the child that he created, a child that he loves. He he sees uh, the very image of his presence within you. When I look at the mirror and I see myself, I see my fears. I see my failures. I see my insecurities. And when I see that, and when you see the same thing in yourself, what happens is it causes you to shrink the size of your God because you're looking more at all of your failures and you're not considering what it is that God is capable of doing in your life and through you. And when you shrink God down, you pray without faith. You worship without awe. You serve without joy, and you suffer without hope. You see, when you feel trapped in your old habits, your past failures, your fractured relationships, you're losing hope that things will ever change because you're listening to Satan's lies that he's whispering and sometimes screaming at you, telling you you're not worthy of God's love. You are not capable of receiving God's healing, and that is nothing but a lie from Satan. You see, you are in a spiritual battle, and he's doing everything that he can to convince you God will not respond to you. I want to tell you, God loves you. You are worth the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for you to heal you. 
Now, in this moment, as the angel's speaking to, to Gideon, Gideon's convinced, and he says to the angel, you've got the wrong guy. But we find out in the very next verse, it says, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. That is the promise that God has always made with his people. I will be with you, and we will win the victory together. What's unthinkable and undoable on your own, it becomes unstoppable when it's you and God together. You see, willpower won't break your addiction, but his power will set you free. Your power, it has limits, but his power knows no bounds. And so God is speaking there to to Gideon, letting him know that he will be with him. And in the next sequence of events, God readies Gideon for the battle by instructing him to remove the idols of Baal and Asherah in Israel's camp. The reason for that is in order for God to be with his people, his people need to remove all other gods. Some of you need to write that down. In order for God to be with his people, his people need to remove all other gods. You see, God is a jealous God. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. And following the destruction of these idols, that Gideon listens and obeys God, and he destroys these other gods, if you will, then we see that, that God moves in this incredible way. We find in a few verses later, beginning in verse 33, it says, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. We're told in chapter 8 that the size of the Midianite army is 135,000 soldiers. They've taken up position against the Israelites. Gideon, as he sees the size of this army, he sends out a call to a few of the tribes there of Israel. And they rally to join in the battle. But I'm guessing that Gideon, he sees the size of the enemy, 135,000 strong. I mean, it's too numerous to even just comprehend. And then he looks and he sees the number of troops that are on his side. And he panics. Because in the very next verse, here's what we read in verse 36. It says, Gideon said to God, "Um, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. He uses this word, if. And then he says, as you have promised, he's leaning in because Gideon's not convinced that God will do what he said he would do. He's looking at the numbers. The odds are against him. And he needs a little extra assurance. And so in this moment, he responds and he says, Look, I will 
place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. Now, I, I get why my wife sometimes will cock her head and look at me with these eyes of like, seriously, when I say some things. And the reason for that is she can point to those moments and those times, those occasions when I didn't do as I had promised. But God has always proven to be faithful. Yet we still doubt his promises at that time, don't we? You see, Gideon is doubting God. God said, I will be with you. I will bring about victory. Not one of the Midianites will survive. 135,000 of them, God has already promised. Not one of them will survive. Gideon is kind of like, eh, I need a little bit more help. I need something to kind of convince me. In fact, Gideon decides he's going to test God. He throws out the fleece. He says, you know, if the fleece is wet but the ground is dry, then I will know. Except if you read the next couple of verses, even though the Lord does exactly what Gideon requests, Gideon says, "Um, I kind of need one more sign. Let's do the opposite. Let's throw out the fleece, and if the fleece is dry but the ground is wet, then I will know. Here's the question I have for every one of us. What fleeces have you put out before the Lord? God has made some promises to you in his word. You've heard very clearly how God says that he will provide, that he will protect, that he will not be defeated, that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. But there are still times in your life, moments in your life, where you put out a fleece and say, yeah, Lord, if you'll show me this, then I'll know that it is you. You need a little extra assurance. Thankfully, God is patient. He was patient with Gideon. He'll be patient with you. He'll assure Gideon of the victory. And the fleece, sure enough, it's wet one night, dry the next night. And so now renewed with confidence, Gideon is ready for battle. But he doesn't know what God knows. God tells Gideon, your army's too large. Israel will think that they did something great with their power, and they need to know that it's only by God's power that their enemy will be defeated. So the Lord instructs Gideon in this this way. He says, Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. We do the math quickly, we find out that Gideon only had 32,000 men to begin with. Against 135,000, that's four to one odds. The odds are stacked against him. And in this moment, as the odds are stacked against him, God doesn't increase Gideon's resources, God reduces them. And in that moment, as God works and he shows Gideon who's truly at work. He says, the Lord says to Gideon, there are still too many men. 
take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water and there the Lord told him, separate those who, bought, who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Now I can imagine Gideon's discouragement as all of those men came to drink from the stream that day. And as he sees more and more where the Lord says, nope, not him, nope, not him, one, you can take him. Nope, not him. By the thousands, he's turning soldiers away. At what point does Gideon say, this is a bad idea? It doesn't make sense at all. But we find the Lord says to Gideon, with the 300 men that, I, that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others Go home. To get in, none of this makes sense. How is God going to be victorious with 300 soldiers against 135,000? Nothing about this makes sense. And the same thought is prevalent today. There is this growing concern, fear within the church of Jesus Christ, the church that God has built through his son, Jesus Christ, that many, especially in our land today, feel as if the church is going to be defeated. I want you to know throughout all of history, the church has always stood and been victorious. And the reason for that is because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is no reason for the believer, the follower of Jesus, to ever feel as if the church is going to be defeated in this country or any other. That's a promise from Jesus Christ. We need to stand on that. We need to take great courage from Jesus saying that he will not be defeated. You see, what happens is that, that you're counting on an abundance from God to bring about victory. God instead wants to show you his ability. We believe that's got to do more. That God has to show more. That God has to act in some more, more powerful ways. But God is showing you that he's more than capable. And he can do with very little. All that needs to be done. What happens next in this story with Gideon will never become standard procedure in any military instruction guide. God instructs Gideon to form three companies of 100 men each. He hands them each a trumpet and a lantern. And he tells them to stand at the ready on the edge of the enemy's camp. And at just the right time that they would then, we see in verse 20, the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Notice, in this entire episode, the soldiers who are fighting with Gideon, they're holding a jar in one hand, and in the other hand, they're holding a lantern. What are they not holding? No sword. You know why they're not holding a sword? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord, church. And what we see in the next moment is that when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. What a moment of great victory. We need to be encouraged that no battle is too great when you're standing in the power of God. Whatever the resources that you do or you do not have, all you need is the Lord's power. That we trust in the work of God to bring about the victory. It was the Apostle John who reminds the follower of Jesus that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The question is, do you have the power of Jesus Christ in you? Whatever the battle, whatever the spiritual struggle that you're experiencing, I want you to know that if you've got the power of Jesus within you, in the name of the Holy Spirit, then you have all that you need. The Lord will bring about a victory, and you can stand against the devil's schemes. Choose Jesus and choose him today. Respond to him and let him fight your battles all the way. Pray with me. You know, Lord, we are so grateful that you love us and that you call us your children and that you have fought on our behalf. That in your love you sent Jesus Christ and and he won the ultimate victory, defeating death, rising again to new life and giving us hope that we too will rise again. Lord, in those spiritual battles that we face, Lord, help us to recognize that you are with us and that you are the one who brings about the victory. Help us to trust in you, not to listen to Satan. Lord, help us to recognize that standing with you is is all we need to do. Father, thank you for your unending love. And it's in your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you to stand and just respond in a time of worship. The Lord has fought an incredible victory for you. May you respond to him in a time of worship right now.